At the start of the year, a trade war with China seemed more likely than a shooting war with North Korea. Beyond rhetoric, what's really changed between the United States and North Korea? Doesn't this follow a time-worn pattern of nuclear tests, harsh rhetoric, and then a deal that leads to everything subsiding, albeit only for a year or two? Welcome to Benchmark, a podcast about the global economy. I'm Daniel Moss. I cover global economics for Bloomberg View in New York. My co-host Scott Lamman is on vacation this week, and I'm pretty sure he's not spending time on a beach in North Korea. But stepping back, isn't this just a distraction from the main game, which is US-China relations? Here to help us address this question is Professor Graham Allison of Harvard University's Kennedy School. He's just published an acclaimed book handicapping the odds of a conflict between the US and China. It's called Destined for War, Can America and China Escape Thucydides' Trap? Graham, it's good to have you. Thanks so much for having me. There's a lot more to your book than North Korea, though it is one of the scenarios you sketch that might result in a clash We'll dive into North Korea in a moment, but first, what is the Thucydides trap? Well, this is an insight uh, that was uh, captured for us by the founder of history, Thucydides, who was reviewing the circumstances that created war between Athens and Sparta in classical Greece. And Thucydides' trap is the dangerous dynamic that occurs when a rising power like Athens or Germany before World War I or China today threatens to displace a ruling power like Sparta or Britain or the U.S. So Thucydides' trap is the dangerous dynamic that occurs when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power. And unfortunately, in most of those cases, the results is war. And you're talking economically, not just militarily rising. Well, the the rise is a multidimensional phenomena, but in which uh, economics is essentially the substructure. So in the case of Athens, Athens had come from nowhere to be economically stronger, particularly because it got the wealth from its uh, allies or colonies. In the German case, after the reunification of Germany in 1870, a country that was about half the size of Britain's had become equal to Britain in GDP by 1900 and a quarter larger by 1914. And if you look at the China story, which you've covered uh, many times, basically a country that wasn't even on any of the international league tables in the economic world in 1980 or 1990 has now come to rival and indeed to eclipse the U.S. in many, many arenas, including as the largest single national economy measured by purchasing power parity, which is the yardstick that both CIA and IMF believes is a single best yardstick for comparing national economies. More on that in a second, but quickly to North Korea. It does sound, Professor, like we've heard some of this stuff before. Have we? Well, yes, we have. And actually, it's a sad story. So there there are many, many layers of it, as you suggested. The underlying driver is the Thucydidean dynamic between a rising China and a ruling U.S., where a rising China thinks that the anomaly in this situation 
is Americans being on the Korean Peninsula. I was in Beijing three weeks ago where everybody wants to talk about Thucydides' trap and how to escape it. And in one conversation with somebody in the government, they said, you know, really there would be no problem on the Korean Peninsula except for the fact that you're there with your troops. If you were to leave and not to have a defense relationship, there would be a government that would be unified. It would be a tributary of China. We wouldn't allow it to have nuclear weapons, and there would be no problem. Now, from the ruling power's perspective, which I certainly subscribe to, we look and say, wait a minute, South Korea is one of the great success stories of the post-World War II period. Uh, An economy that was nothing has become the 13th or 12th largest economy in the world. They have a successful democracy. We're very proud of South Korea. We're not going anywhere. That's an underlying dynamic. Now, on top of that, you've got a nutty regime in Pyongyang, which has been marching down the track to build a nuclear capability first, and then the ability to deliver nuclear weapons against South Korea and against Japan. And it was now on the cusp of developing a capability to deliver nuclear weapons against San Francisco or Los Angeles. So, yes, we have seen this story before. And unfortunately, in the Clinton administration, when we thought of acting rather than talking to prevent it, we thought the risks of acting were too great. When the Bush administration faced that same crossroads, they came to the same conclusion. When the Obama administration looked at that, they came to the same conclusion. So I think we're all on our little bit the edge of our seats now as the Thucydidean dynamic is the underlying driver. But above this and the expression of it in the current setting is this movement towards a showdown in North Korea in which either North Korea is going to acquire the ability to strike the West Coast with nuclear weapons. Most people are betting that's how that's how it'll turn out. Or alternatively, Trump is going to act to prevent them doing that, including attacking North Korea. I'm glad you mentioned that. You described a nutty regime in Pyongyang. What about the new regime in Washington? Does that add an extra dynamic to this that we didn't see in the past three administrations when they deliberated on this issue? Well, I think it certainly does. And there's the there's a kind of, you can tell the two sides of the coin story. On the one hand, uh, if you were to go back a year or five years or 10 years, and you were to say there was a regime that was led by somebody who was erratic, impulsive, uh, maybe even a little crazy or nutty, there would be only one candidate for that. Now we've solved that problem. So uh, Washington is in the competition. That's on the one side of the coin. On the other side of the coin, if you're going to make credible to North Korea or more importantly to China, who's the lifeline to North Korea, that you're simply not going to tolerate a North Korea that can attack the Americans with nuclear weapons, you need somebody who can appear a little nutty. How much leverage does China actually have? One reads and hears varied opinions on this. Well, I think it's complicated, but it's a fact that 90% of all the oil that North Korea gets comes from China. So that pipeline is a lifeline. And if China were to squeeze that lifeline, uh, the oil on which the North Korean military is dependent in order to operate and on which North Korean factories are dependent in order to operate would be at risk. So the one occasion when China declared that there was a temporary problem with the oil for three days, the North Koreans snapped to attention. 
So that's a card China has not been prepared to play yet. And I think if I understand, I mean, if I try to read the method in what appears to be madness in the in the Trump administration's messaging about North Korea, it is to try to persuade Xi Jinping that he needs to squeeze that lifeline to say to Kim Jong-un, now, stop at this point, now, not later, because if you continue, I really believe this fellow Trump might attack you. And if he attacks you, then as we've all gone through that scenario many times, we're likely to have the second Korean War. And Xi, Xi remembers that the, in the first Korean War, the Chinese and Americans were fighting each other. Yeah. One of the scenarios you discuss in your book involves the death of a North Korean leader and U.S. and Chinese troops rushing in with special forces to kind of control the situation and inadvertently bumping into each other and things progress. Well, progress is maybe the wrong word. Things develop from there. Are there any other scenarios where the U.S. and China could be drawn into conflict as a result of North Korea? Well, I think, unfortunately, I mean, yes, there are multiple ones. I just described a couple in the in the book, and uh, folks at the Pentagon have worked through, oh, I don't know, a dozen scenarios. But the one that I think is most troublesome right now, to go back to your earlier question, is it's only five easy steps from where we are right now today to Americans and Chinese fighting each other on the Korean Peninsula. So Kim Jong-un conducts some more tests. Trump? attacks the missile launch sites in order to prevent the tests being completed. North Korea responds by shelling Seoul with the artillery that it is a 1,000 pieces able to kill 10,000 or 100,000 people very quickly in Seoul. The U.S. and South Korea then attack that artillery as well as other rockets and launchers that can kill hundreds of thousands, even millions of people in South Korea if they launch against them. At that point, we're into the Second Korean War. And China, in the First Korean War, as we marched up the peninsula to unify the country, entered the war and beat us back down to the 38th parallel. That was in 1950. That was when China was only a 50th our size. And as Chinese say now, we think we established that proposition then, so don't test that once more. But if the events unfolded in this manner... Given the underlying dynamic of this Thucydidean competition, I can really imagine Americans and Chinese fighting each other in Korea, which is something neither president and neither government wants at all. Well, Professor, stepping back from North Korea for a second and looking more broadly at U.S.-China relations, if I read the book correctly, you're not actually predicting war between the U.S. and China, you do seem to be saying the two countries are on a track that makes it more likely than many people realize. Is that the gist of it? Exactly right. And you read it just right. So basically, this is a book motivated by uh, trying not to predict war, but to prevent it. And it says, to prevent war, we need first to recognize that in a Thucydidean dynamic, there's inherent risk that doesn't make sense, but it's there. So it's a risk that I see everything you're doing as the rising power as part of this effort to displace me. And you see everything I'm doing as an effort to try to contain 
and prevent you from from emerging. So under those conditions, events that would otherwise be inconsequential, like the assassination of an archduke that served as the trigger for what became World War I, or easily managed, can end up triggering this set of actions and reactions by the primary protagonists that take them to a place where they don't want to go. You discuss the considerable gains that China has made economically. Where has it pulled ahead of the U.S. economically, and where is it still falling short? Well, I've been surprised, actually, I mean, uh, how little Americans have appreciated how far and how fast China has come. Uh, as I say in the chapter on this, uh, I quote Vaclav Havel, the former president of the Czech Republic. He says, all this has happened so fast, we haven't yet had time to be astonished. So in the book, I give a short version of a quiz I give to my students in my class at Harvard, and which says, when could China become number one? And it has, in the long version, 26 indicators. Number one, manufacturer. Number one, trading. Number one, supercomputers. Number one, artificial intelligence. Number one, GDP. Uh, and students guess 2040, 2050, not in my lifetime. Then I show them table two, the label of which is already Already all these things have happened. So China already has the largest middle class. China already has the fastest supercomputers. China already has the most billionaires. And in every arena, as we watch the paper almost every day, you see another space in which China is emerging to rival and, as I say, often eclipses. I saw a piece just last week of Starbucks the uh, chief executive of it says he believes they're going to soon have more Starbucks in China than they have in the U.S. And when he started there 15 years ago, you know, everybody said Chinese only drink tea. They don't drink coffee. So basically, if you start with 1.4 billion people, that is four times as many people as we have, if they're only one quarter as productive as Americans, they're going to have an economy as big as ours. And why should they only be one quarter as productive? Now, what about the financial system? I was surprised on a recent trip to Asia, which coincided with the Federal Reserve's Open Market Committee meeting. In the days leading up and the day of that FOMC meeting, there was saturation coverage of every sentence, every nuance. And that was even when it was widely predicted interest rates would be unchanged. And in fact, they were. I was surprised that there was very little or no reference anywhere to the People's Bank of China. And yet, if China is on the ascendancy economically, surely there would have been at least as much discussion. Can you break that down for us, Professor? What are we missing here? Well, I think that's a very astute observation. I've noticed the the same thing. In, in part, it's because the Chinese still keep control of their uh, financial system in ways that the U.S. doesn't. They don't have free flows of capital. They have many more instruments to operate, and they make their choices in terms of their overall picture. So I've had a good fortune to interact uh, on a regular basis with the fellow who's the number one economic assistant to Xi Jinping, Lu He, who was a student here at Harvard at the Kennedy School 20 years ago. He's an extremely able uh, person. But when he talks about how China is thinking about their own financial system, he says, look, we imagined that 
finance was magical and that Americans knew all about finance and had that under under control. So we were just taking lessons until 2007-8 in the financial crisis when we discovered they don't understand how this works any better than we do. And actually, they allowed a degree of risk to develop that we would never allow. So when people come back and say to us, you know, relax controls of your financial system, we say, forget about it. Look and see what risks that entail. So I think in part because the Fed is uh, obviously an independent actor and is now at a particularly important point as it looks at the at the issue of unwinding, it's uh, gathered more attention. But I think in part it's because on the Chinese side, the actions of the People's Bank are really subordinate to what the national government decides to do. Maybe in 15 years' time, it'll be the PBOC's dot plot and forecasts we'll be talking about. Before we go, Professor, devil's advocate, why isn't China just like Japan? If you go back 30 years ago, everyone was saying that Japan was the rising power. Japan is number one. It permeated popular culture. You probably saw the Wesley Snipes, Harvey Keitel movie, Rising Sun. Could we be missing something here? That's a good. It's a good point. And uh, as uh, Herb Stein, a f- famous uh, chairman of the Fed, said, "If a trend can't continue forever, it won't." And I propose the Allison footnote to Stein's law, which says it's much easier to predict that something will happen than when. So, can this trend continue forever? No, of course not. But ten years ago, could it continue for another ten years? Most people bet not. I bet that it would. If I look at it, I don't see why China can't continue, at least for the foreseeable future, growing at three times the rate of the U.S., which is what it's been doing. And since in this Thucydidean story, it's the relative growth of the two parties, I would say uh, that's the way to bet it. Professor, thank you. Benchmark will be back next week, and until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute, rate and review the show so more listeners can find us, and do let us know what you thought. You can follow me on Twitter at Moss underscore Eco. Graham, your Twitter handle, please. It's just uh, Graham Allison. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson. The head of podcast is Alec McCabe. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And once again, Graham Allison, thank you. Thank you so much.